Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We have started a new, relevant, and powerful series in the Beatitudes. In these talks, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer will be leaning into what they mean and how they are relevant to us in our daily walk. Today's talk is called Life Signs of a Believer, Poor in Spirit. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. And now, here's Heath. in a couple different passages. Clearly, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. We'll also be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to kind of put a bookmark, use that little red ribbon that you never use, and go ahead and mark Ephesians 2. We'll be getting to that shortly. This morning, we're studying the life signs of a believer. Life signs are something that indicate that a being is alive. When we want to declare a person alive or dead, we look for things like respiration. We look to take their pulse. And if, the, if respiration is there, not there, if the pulse is not there, a doctor will declare us physically dead. Likewise, there are spiritual life signs. There are signs that you are a born-again believer, and those signs are not that somebody wrote, you know, a date in the front cover of your Bible. It's not the fact that you're here. It's not the fact that you've been baptized. It's not the fact that you give money occasionally, you know, to the Lord through the church. The life signs of a believer look very different from that. They are found in what we call the Beatitudes, there in the Sermon on the Mount, it's what Jesus uses to introduce his idea of what the kingdom of God is like and what the kingdom children look like. And the first of these attributes in the, I believe, the earliest that you see in a person who is being drawn to Christ, who has the life of Christ within them, is that they are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is not something you're going to see out there in the world in its truest form outside of those in Jesus Christ. The world is not poor in spirit. The world is, in fact, rich in spirit. If you've ever tried to share the gospel with people before and you were to ask them those, you know, those famous questions, are you 100% certain? If you were to die today that you'd go to heaven, those people who say yes, more often than not, they'll then go ahead and hand me a spiritual resume. Here's why I'm going to heaven. I've done good things. I help out the Boy Scouts. I, you know, I worked with the kids. I help grannies across the street. I give money to causes. Uh, just the other day, I helped a guy whose house burned down, you know, and I, 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 I mow my neighbor's grass. I'm a good guy. And so that's what it looks like to be rich in spirit. We, we do a self-examination of our life and say, you know what? I do have something to offer God. Man is born in this condition. We are born self-sufficient. I'm, I'm good enough in myself to stand before God. It's a symptom of pride. You know, my freshman year of high school, you know, we, I got put into a literature class, and that's where the teacher forces you to read all these things that you never would read otherwise. I mean, any of you really pulling Shakespeare off the shelf, you know, when you have a little free time? Well, one of the things that our teacher forced us to read, and for whatever reason, this amongst all the other assignments that I had to read in literature class just stuck with me to this day. And it was when she made us read a poem called Invictus. It's a, it's a Latin word that means unconquerable. And when we read it, it was celebrated as a triumph on the power of the human spirit. It was applauded, it was cheered. It was written by a man named William Ernest Henley as he suffered from tuberculosis. 
And he's sitting there, he's in the hospital and he's suffering at home and he's just, he's looking at how miserable his life is suffering from this disease, which will take his life. And he's thinking, if God is truly out there and if God is really good, why am I in here suffering like I am? It's a place a lot of us come to. If God is truly good, why is there so much suffering in the world? He had that question. But rather than to go deeper into God and to get to know God and to use that trial to draw him to the Lord, instead he went inward and he looked for answers inside his own heart. And with that question in his mind, he wrote this poem, which is etched into my brain from ninth grade. It reads like this, out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's there maybe, for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. In other words, my, I, whatever gods are maybe, I don't believe that there is a God. I believe that all of this, I'm a victim of time and chance, and I just keep getting beat down by life, but no matter how much life beats me down, I won't bow my head. He says, beyond this place of wrath and tears, our existence on earth, beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. Talking about death. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. He says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. Let's pause there. What's he talking about here? The straight gate? scrolls that talk about all the sins that we've ever done. This is a direct quote against the Bible, if you don't know. Matthew chapter 7 talks about straight is the gate, is the path, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. How charged with punishments the scroll. Read the end of Revelation. You're going to see that every sinner apart from Jesus is going to stand before God one day, and the books, it says, will be open. These scrolls of all the things that we've ever done wrong, it will be opened. The books are opened, and God will judge us according to our sins. William Henley says, I don't care how straight your gate is. I don't care how charged with punishments of the scrolls. I don't care what your Bible says about me. He says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And the world stands up and gives that poem a standing ovation. Unconquerable. That is how man is born into the world. I am self-sufficient in and of myself. I'm a good person. I have something to offer God. I have an unconquerable soul. And no matter how much God, if you even exist, and, and, what it, and this describes so many atheist positions, by the way. I don't believe that God exists. And then what do they do? They say a few minutes later, I, I'm so mad at God. Why does God let this happen and this happen? It's like they know God exists, but I reject him because he allows suffering into my life. As if the worst thing that could happen to a human is that we endure some suffering. But he sees himself as the captive of his own fate, the master of his own soul. We have another word for master. It's called Lord. When a person is outside of Jesus, they're their own Lord. They start using terms like, this is my life, my future, my money, my retirement, my time. It's me. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. Christians begin to lose that terminology as they are born again in Christ. But this is how we're all born into the world. We're born feral, wild, untamed, undomesticated. I will not bow to God. I'm the captain of my own fate. 
This is what it looks like to be rich in spirit. Where the church at Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, God, Jesus himself, is speaking to this church, and he says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And that's the deceitfulness of having everything you need. You start thinking, I don't need anything but me. I don't need God. I'm good by myself. He says, not realizing that, in fact, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's how God sees them. They were proud. I'm self-sufficient. But they should have been humble. You know, the first sin of the universe... You know, a lot of times you ask somebody a trivia question, Bible trivia, what's the first sin of the universe? Most of the time people will start recounting the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That is not, in fact, the first sin. What was the first sin? It was Satan's pride, wasn't it? Satan used to be the highest ranking angel in all of glory. He was Lucifer, son of the morning, morning star. He's uh, this beautiful, glorious angel that God gave an elevated position above other angels, and he fell victim to pride. He looked at his position, he's like, hey, I'm not happy with what God calls me. I want to be like God. And if you read in a couple different chapters in the Bible, Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, you'll see God speaking through the king of Tyre to Satan who is motivating these words. And God will describe the fall of Satan. And by the way, how do we know it's actually talking about Satan and not just the king of Tyre that has both a near and a far fulfillment? Because uh, it, speak, it goes far beyond just what a human king, he starts talking about, he starts talking about things that the human king never did. It's sort of like when Jesus looked at Peter, you know, and Peter's like, Lord, may it never be, don't be crucified. And Jesus is like, what does he say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. So he goes, he's speaking through Peter to Satan. This is what is happening here with the king of Tyre. He's speaking through the king of Tyre to Satan who is motivating this man. In Isaiah 14, we see some symptoms of Satan's pride. Isaiah 14, 13, God says, You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Ascending into heaven. In other words, there's a sense of a self-righteousness. I in who I am is good enough to stand in my own merits before God. I will ascend into heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. A throne is something that you set up from which you rule. You are the Lord and master. Satan wants to be on the throne. Pride loves control. Pride loves that. They love position. They love power. They love titles. Satan says, and these are called the I wills. If you don't notice, every one of these sentences begins with him. I will. He says, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. The Mount of Assembly was Jerusalem. It's the temple. It's where God's people, it's where there's the center of all true religion. And he says, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. I'm going to govern in religion. Remember, Satan's not opposed to religion. In the end of time, when Satan gets to kind of rule the world how he wishes, remember, there's still a one-world religion. Satan's not opposed to religion. He's opposed to true spirituality. He doesn't mind how many times you go to church as long as you're not converted. He doesn't mind that you come here, that you give money, that you sing songs, that you have your programs and activities, that you follow a schedule. That kind of stuff Satan's okay with as long as you never get converted. And so he says, I'm going to sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I'm going to use religion to glorify me. And it says, uh, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds in glory. He says, I will make myself like the most high. Pride causes us to be jealous and to desire what others have. Satan was jealous of none other than God himself. 
These are symptoms of pride and friends. More often than not, we could probably see ourselves in a few of these. After that, Satan, Bible says, book of Luke tells us, Satan was cast to the earth by God like a bolt of lightning. Unholiness will not remain in the presence of God. One sin, one sin, and we are unholy and we are cast from God's presence. Adam and Eve committed one sin and they're out of God's presence. How many sins do you think you gotta commit before we are unworthy to stand in the presence of God? All it takes is one. Bible tells us if we are guilty of one sin, we are guilty of the entire law. Doesn't matter how big the rock is that you throw through that window, that window gets broken. And that's our sin before God. Well, Satan gets cast to the earth. We know that he, uh, when he was cast to earth, Revelation 12, 7 says, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth. But when he was thrown down to earth, it wasn't just him who came, was it? It says, and his angels were thrown down with him. Where did Satan get angels? Did Satan create angels? He did not, did he? Where did his angels come from? They were God's angels. Another symptom of pride is you love to create factions and you love to turn people against God. You gather a faction of people and that's exactly what Satan did in his pride. It causes him to be factious and divisive and to deceive people into turning against God's intended order for things. And he still does that. That's why it's no small thing. When you see someone creating factions within the church, understand this, they are doing the bidding of Satan. That's what Satan does. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one that creates factions. He's the one that resists God's intended order. That's why in Titus 3, Paul says, you don't take that lightly. In Titus 3.10, he says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's a description of church discipline. For division? For just complaining, backbiting, sowing discord? That? That's exactly what he's talking about. When we make accusations against the brethren, friends, we're doing the bidding of Satan for him. And he is pleased. He sits in the back of his chair and laughs. He says, knowing that, have nothing to do with him, he says, knowing that person is warped and is sinful and self-condemned. These are not terms that God uses of a true believer. They may be religious, but a person who is continually, habitually a factious, factious divisive person, he is self-condemned. That's not a description of a believer. In fact, if you look at believers versus unbelievers, God has kind of this dichotomy in the Bible. He uses two terms to describe believers in general and unbelievers in general, and it's these two words, humble and proud. Humble and proud. God's people are humble. Satan's people are proud. Jesus himself was humble. Satan was proud. In fact, if you look in the Bible, James 4, 6, you see that dichotomy very clear. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5 says the exact same thing. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3, toward the scorners, he, God, is scorn, scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Another word for grace. Now, when we're talking about God gives grace to the humble, it's not just that he's kind toward them. We're talking about saving grace. Humble people are the people who are beneficiaries of and receive God's grace. But God, it says, resists the proud. This word resist means to line up in a battle formation against. Shields, spears, swords, we're ready to oppose you. You are my enemy. God sees those who are proud of heart as enemies of God. This is not a description of a believer that if I'm a humble person, God's gonna bless me. If I'm a little proud, oh well. Uh, proud describes an unbeliever. 
His grace, those who are saved, are those who are truly children of God. No wonder Jesus, in the very first attribute, when he wants to give a life sign of a believer, uses the phrase, poor in spirit. God's children are humble. Blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, it's this Greek word, makarios. It's biblically defined in Romans chapter 4, where the exact same word is used in verses 7 to 8. Blessed, there's that same word. Blessed are those, and what does a blessed person look like? He says, they are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, there it is again, is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's what a blessed person is. It doesn't simply mean happy. Blessed is is the description of a person upon whom God's favor rests. And yes, as a true believer, we exhibit joy as a fruit of the Spirit. But it's not simply that we're happy. He's describing what kingdom children look like in that word blessed. Who Who is it that is blessed? Who is it that upon whom God's favor rests? Who is it that possesses the grace of God? Who is it that is a true believer? It is the person who is poor in spirit, whose sins are covered, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whom the Lord will not count his sins. Blessed means to be saved. Blessed are what kind of people? The first quality here is poor in spirit. Our spirit, pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, like where we get pneumatic, talking about air. When Adam, when God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, he had sort of this unanimated body, but then God, breathes into him the breath of life, the pneuma of man. And now man is not just an external being, he has an inner man. And so our pneuma is our inner man, the part of us that stands before God. It's our spiritual identity before God. And God says, born again people, blessed people, are those who in their spiritual identity, in their inner man, they recognize, I am poor that there's nothing in my spirit that is good enough to merit standing before God. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. I know that in me is is not anything that God should receive to himself. He is poor in spirit. And this word poor, again, doesn't mean I don't have enough money to go to the movies. I don't drive a very nice car, that kind of poor. I only have $20 left in my checking account, poor. I live paycheck to paycheck, poor. This kind of poor, remember, we said it's the word that means to cower, means to tremble. That's the kind of people who are beggars. They would offer a trembling hand, and they, for whatever reason, maybe they're a widow or they're crippled, they cannot work. They can do nothing to save themselves. The reason that they're alive is because they're dependent upon the alms of others. Will you give me money? If you don't put money in this hand, I will die. God says, that is what poor in spirit is. It's believers offering to God, not triumphantly standing before God saying, I know I did what you wanted, now let me in. It's poor in spirit is this, is beggars. We're cowering before him and we offer God a trembling hand and say, God, apart from you, I have nothing to offer you. If you don't put grace into my hands, I'm going to hell. That's poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer him. Every believer has been there or you're not a believer. Every believer is poor in spirit or you're not a believer. It's the very first life sign of a believer. When we look at ourselves and we don't see something that's great, we see something that has fallen before God, something that is weak before God, something that's helpless before God, something that is sinful before God. 
And we simply offer him a trembling hand and say, God, would you fill these hands? When we're poor in spirit, we will see our own good works the way God does. Got a little construction team I'd like to call upon right now. Go ahead and walk right up here, and they're going to help set me up. A little AV, a little sophistication. I'm going to teach you a little something. While they're coming up here, I'd just like to draw attention to a verse on the screen here, Isaiah 64 and verse 6, very famous verse, but I'd like us to really contemplate its meaning. And you guys can bring that right up here, front and center. Let's just right over here. That's right. Thank you so much, guys. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all... So that's inclusive. That's mean. That's everybody hearing this. We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. When he says unclean, understand that God is categorizing you and I. He says we're all in the category of unclean. Now, unclean doesn't mean much to us. It meant a whole lot to the Jews because unclean is your status before God. And you could, if you're unclean, you've touched a dead body, you become unclean, and there's several things that would make you unclean. And some of those things you could be made ritually clean, and then you can stand before God again to offer your sacrifice. And there were some things that you would be rendered unclean for the rest of your life, and there's no hope. For instance, leprosy would make you unclean, and there's no cure for leprosy. In fact, if you're a leper before God, when you see people walking down the street towards you as a leper, you had a moral responsibility to do something. You would have to confess that you're a leper, and you would have to confess it publicly. You'd have to shout to them, unclean, unclean, and the people would see you and they would avoid you. You would have to be honest with your condition. In my body, I'm decayed. And I'm going to openly and honestly and publicly confess my uncleanness before everyone in the world. This is how God sees us. He says, we have all become unclean. And what God wants us to do is to openly and honestly confess to God, unclean! There's nothing good in me. I have no right to stand before you, Lord. Moreover, he says, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. A garment is something you wear. When you pollute a garment that you wear, there were several reasons why you would wear a garment that you pollute. Uh, I'll just give you one example. If you were to wear, like for instance, the leper again, they would have oozing sores and blood and pus and a lot of gross stuff. They would wrap those with rags and it would become filled with, you know, just blood and pus. And even a leper would find it reprehensible and throw it away from them. God says the very best that we have to offer him is that. It's a polluted garment. It's a filthy rag. It's a blood-soaked, pus-filled, infectious pile of just disgustingness. And that's what God calls our righteous deeds. What do you think our sins look like to God? Now, often when you talk to a, an unsafe person about their condition before God, they will recognize, I do wrong things. I have this lovely little scale here. This is often how lost people see their life, isn't it? You ever witnessed somebody and they're like, well, why am I, go why am I going to heaven? Well, I've done a lot of good things. Yeah, I've done bad things. Boys will be boys, right? But I've done a lot of good things too. But sure, I'll acknowledge the bad things I've done. And so it's our sin, our, these merits, both good and bad, I'm going to represent through books today because the Bible says the books will be opened and God will judge us according to our sins. Just so happens the first book is called The Strong-Willed Child. That was me. Okay, uh, I recognize in this book there are stories and stories and stories of the ways that I've sinned against my mother and father. And this 
outside of Christ will weigh against me in the day of judgment. So I'm going to put it on this scale over here. Oh, the scale isn't looking too good yet. It looks pretty uh, weighted down on one side. And I continue to go through here, and I've got, oh, this, uh, oh, this one's a real page turner here. This is every time in my life I have committed lust. Let's not read that one aloud. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and put that over here. And, get, you know, this is probably probably a 10-part series, but we're just going to put one book down there. And it starts to stack up against us. We look through here, and this is every time I use the Lord's name in vain. Oh, my. You know, and I just, I use God's name in a flippant, trite, cheap way. You know, the Jews wouldn't even dare say the name Yahweh for fear of using it in a, in a less than glorifying manner. But we'll just throw the name God out whenever we're mad as an invective. Just, I'm upset. I'm surprised. God, you know. So this is all the times I did that. So let's just stack that against us. And it just, it just keeps adding up. And uh, we could go on and on with all of our sins. Here's a book for every time I lied. You know, here's a book for every time I did not honor and love my wife. You know, and it just it goes on. And I've got a whole stack of books here. And you say, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I know we're all... The weight of sin is stacked against us, but I've got some good things in my corner too. Let's look at those. All righty, here's a book. Oh, this is all the times that I, I helped people. I did nice things. I did good things for folks. I, I helped them. I gave people money when they needed it. I brought food over one time to somebody in Thanksgiving, and it just made me feel so good. This, these, are, these are my good deeds here. Now, the problem is, is where are we going to put a book of our good deeds? On which side of the scale? Most of the time, you'd think over here, wouldn't you? The problem is, Isaiah 64, 6, what did God just say about our good deeds? They're filthy rags that it's repugnant to God when man who is unclean and in his sin offers to God, God, this ought to take care of all that. When man takes his good deeds that God sees as filthy rags, it's offensive to God, and even our good deeds get stacked up over here. If, friends, you are entering into eternity with a solid trust and faith in your ability to do good things, understand that that is what the scales of justice are going to look like for you in eternity. There's going to be nothing on this side because even our good deeds are filthy rags before the Lord. They're repugnant to Him. If this is what our scales look like and what you're trusting in is your good deeds, friend, you are going to open your eyes in hell one day and you're going to cry out. We have to be poor in spirit, not rich in spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 makes a few points here for us. It shows us what we really look like before God. How does God see me? Ephesians chapter 2, first three verses, we're going to look at man's position. And the first thing God says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. A trespass means that God has put a line don't go further than this, and we step right across it anyway, okay? That God has given certain rules in life, and we look at it and go, <laughs> that's such an old rule. It's not that big a deal. We've grown up. Our culture, we've progressed beyond that, and so we can do those things now. God calls those transgressions. God says that we are, because of our transgressions and sins, before God, what is our life sign? What does he call us? You are dead. Let me ask you, what can a dead man do to make his life right with God? A dead man can receive life. What did Lazarus do to cooperate with Jesus to be born again and to be literally, physically made alive again? What did Lazarus do? He received life. Jesus, he had to have a Messiah approach his tomb and speak the words of life 
and his soul became alive. And then he began to demonstrate life signs. He was breathing, he was talking, he didn't want to be with dead people anymore, he got hungry. That's how God sees us before him. We are dead in our trespasses and there's nothing we can do to earn anything before God. He says, we followed the course of this world. We did what everybody else does. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, that's, that's a reference to Satan. According to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he's saying that Satan, when people do sinful, evil things against God, he says they're not just doing it because they want to do it. He says that the prince of the power of the air is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that Satan is still doing things to rebel against God, but now he's doing it through lost people. Satan is still motivating people to do evil things. I mean, who do you really think was behind the Holocaust in World War II? You really think Hitler really just came up with this grand idea one day to kill a bunch of Jews? He is satanically motivated. He is at work in the sons of disobedience. He works through lost men. Anybody see the Grammys a little while back? Got a photo here for you. Don't worry. It's, this is, believe it or not, one of the more tame photos of that. I hope you didn't, uh, weren't not unlucky enough to have to see that. But it's something that it's so, it was so vile, even the secular news media was saying, what have we come to? Hollywood is no longer being covert about its worship of Satan. And so you got this, this woman, who I can't even show you the picture of her, in a scantily clad, inside a cage, whom Satan has entrapped, and then a bunch of people doing all kinds of lewd acts because the song that he's singing is about fornication and he's dressed up as the literal devil with people actually worshiping him. And this is what we celebrate as entertainment. Make no mistake, friends, Hollywood is not your friend. They are preaching a message in every song, in every movie, in every TV show, and Christians need to be discerning. We don't just take it in and say, well, that's where entertainment is today. Hollywood is not covert about his worship of Satan. Satan is still at work in the sons of disobedience. And that about summarizes Ephesians 2, 3. He says, among whom we all lived. We've been there, all of us, even as Christians. It's not that we're greater than others. We're not in some ivory castle. We've all been there. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Notice he says that in the past tense. This is what we once were. Christians don't continue to live in the passions of the flesh. Not true Christians carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And he says, and we're by nature children of wrath. Sorry, Rousseau. We are not noble savages. We're not born tabula rasas that all children are born naturally good and it's society that inflicts pain upon them and forces them to be evil. The Bible says we were by nature. The moment we were born, we were born children of wrath. Children who are sinners, bent to sin, desiring to sin. God sees us as lawbreakers before him, every one of us. We were not just making mistakes. As a world, we're not simply broken. These are not the terms that the Bible uses to describe lost people. The Bible describes us as lawbreakers, as sinful. We were not just fooled. We were not just ignorant. We did not just make some bad decisions when I was younger. We sinned against a holy God, and God holds that against us. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. When we can read this description of Ephesians chapter two and we begin to nod our head in agreement, it's at that point we understand that we are poor in spirit. Number two, man's only hope. Verse four says, but 
God. These are often called the two most important words in the entire Bible. Yeah, I was dead in my trespasses. I was lost. I was without hope. I was a lawbreaker before God. But God, thank God God is nothing like me. But God, it says, because of the great love, who is rich in mercy, that's God not giving me the punishment I should receive. It says, with the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, God didn't love me because of what I did. God doesn't love me more because I do some good things. God didn't look through the portals of time and say, wow, you know what? That's right, that Jamie is such a good guy, and I think that's why I want to save him. I want more of Jamie in eternity with me. God didn't look at that. God looked at us through the portals of time and saw wretchedness. He saw filth. He saw sin. He saw rebellion. And despite that, God, who is rich in mercy, it says, made us alive together with him. That's something that God does to us. That's what a living deity does to a dead body. He made us alive together with him. And it says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Grace is, is the is are all the good things that God does for us that we didn't earn. It's unmerited favor before God. By grace you have been saved through faith. It, it says, and raised up, us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so how much of that gospel message gives man glory? None. I mean, look at it again. It was God who is rich in mercy, God who loved us, God who found us, God who raised us, God who seated us. Our salvation testimony is not a story of what I did. It's a story of, look what God did. What was my part in being saved? It was getting lost. It was discovering that I was a lost being before him. Why is it so important that we understand that salvation is entirely a work of God and not a work of our own? It's because God isn't going to have Satan 2.0. He's not gonna have another person kicking open the doors of heaven saying, God, I'm here. I did everything you asked for. Let's have the music start playing. I'm in heaven. Heaven has me to think that I bowed my knee and I did what was requested of God. It's not gonna be a glorification of me. Heaven isn't going to be uh, talking about what I did in my life. It's not just going to be my rewards. Heaven is not a hall of fame for heavenly citizens where we're all going to pat each other on the back and say, man, Sarah Nybert, I'm so glad you made it. Let's look back at all that Sarah Nybert did in her life. It's not a hall of fame of heavenly citizens in what we did. Eternity is going to be an eternal display of God's grace and mercy to us. It says, so that in the coming ages... That's now and that's all eternity. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his own grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's all about him. It's zero about us. And if you are poor in spirit, not only do you don't mind, you're like, amen. That's exactly what eternity is supposed to be like. It's a glorification of Christ. He says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is something we didn't earn, didn't have anything to do. We're a dead body Jesus made alive. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. What? Salvation and faith. I'll let you chew on that. He says, even that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's going to be no boasting in heaven. Bible says it is, it is excluded. There's going to be nobody standing before God as if, like, you know, God and I did something together. As if, but there's a lot of people who view salvation as a synergistic act, don't they? 
Jesus did his part. Now it's time for me to do mine. Problem is, that still gives you glory, doesn't it? We cooperated. As if we're going to get to heaven and high-five God. Yeah, we did this. That's a synergistic act, but that's not biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is look what Jesus did. It's entirely a work of him. It's what we call in theological world uh, monergism. Mono meaning one. Ergon, it's a word that means work. We get the word ergonomics, the study of work. Monoergon, monergism, it means one work. Somebody did the work and it wasn't me. It was all Jesus. Jesus did all the work. My job in salvation was to be dead in my trespasses and sins. That is biblical salvation. When we understand and we accept this as true, it is at that point that you are poor in spirit, that I'm a beggar before God, I'm just offering him trembling hands, saying, God, fill these hands with grace and mercy, else I die and go to hell, and justly so. Number three, we see man's purpose. He says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Once again, who do we belong to? Him. He's our Lord. Romans 10, 9, we confess him as Lord. We belong to him. We are his workmanship. We belong to him, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, for those who are born again, we recognize that we're poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer God. It's not like you were poor in spirit one time, and now you can be proud. Believers who began as poor in spirit, we remain poor in spirit our entire life, and we're just so thankful to be a part of what God is doing. We gladly give him our resources. We gladly give to God our time, because it's not our resources or our time. He's the Lord. And when we recognize this, that we're his workmanship created for the purpose of good works, poor in spirit looks like this. We become consumed with doing the mission of God. We become like Jesus. When they went to the temple and Jesus is just a young man, not even a full-grown adult yet, and his parents are going off, and where did they find Jesus at? He was in the temple, and there he's discussing things. He's, he's about his father's work. They said, you, you need to know, I, I need to be about my father's business. Jesus tells his disciples, we need to work while it's still daylight because the night is coming when no man can work. Jesus, who was poor in spirit as an example to us, was consumed with doing the work of God, with doing the mission of God. Jesus wasn't so much interested in religious schedules as much as he was accomplishing the mission of God. We were created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing his good works that we become consumed with God's mission, that Jesus' mission now becomes my, my, my mission, my life's purpose. I mean, what an honor that is. Think about this. There's a work that God, our creator, thought was so important that he designed that work before the world even began. And then he create a continuum of time, space, and matter so that we could, he could operate in this world and we could see a little bit of who he is and we could carry out his mission in this little tiny globe. And that work that he started through the prophets and through Jesus, it started at the beginning of time, but yet here in 2023, God is calling us into that work. Can you imagine a higher honor for your life than the work that God started before eternity passed? And now he's calling you and I to be a part of it. So those who are poor in spirit are still poor in spirit, and they see their life's purpose as the mission of God, not simply the entertainment of their flesh. Blessed, born again, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Who goes to heaven? Only people who are poor in spirit. People who recognize I have nothing to offer him. That in myself, there's no good thing. 
There's nothing in myself of which I need to be proud. Look at me. Look at my track record. Look what I've done in life. It's all about Jesus and what he's done. You remember our poem, Invictus, that we started out this service with? It shook the world when it came out. And there were many who recoiled against it, but there was one woman who I just believe had the best possible response to this poem ever. And it's a woman in the early part of the 20th century named Dorothy Day. And she responded to William Henley's manifesto with a poem that kind of tongue-in-cheek, it follows the same kind of rhyme and meter as the first poem, but with a very different response. Remember Invictus, what did that stand for? Unconquerable. And she wrote a poem called Conquered. I want you to hear it. She wrote, out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, he's in control of my life. For since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. I have nothing to fear when Jesus is in control. He says, under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his, the aid, that spite the menace of the years keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He has cleared the punishment from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate, and Christ is the captain of my soul. When we're born into this world, all men, we start out as invictus unconquerable. I am where I am because of me. But then as the grace of God comes to us and we understand God's mercy and our sin before him, Romans 10, 9, it says, we confess Jesus as Lord. It's a word that means master. When we get saved, friends, it's an acknowledgement that Jesus has conquered my soul. And that is true of every child of God who is poor, poor in spirit. We are a joyfully conquered people, or we're unsaved. We are all either conquered, where Jesus is the master of my soul, or we are invictus, unconquerable. It's because of me. But friends, let me tell you, if you see your heart as being unconquerable, if you see your heart as being one that you're going to heaven because of something you did, because of something that's good in you, you are not conquered, you're invictus, and one day you will sorrowfully open your eyes in hell. I beg of you, if that is you today, respond to Jesus' call to receive his mercy and his grace and join the halls of the redeemed, those who are poor in spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that as we study your word, we understand and identify what some of these life signs of a believer are. God, I beg of you that for every soul in here, that this might describe the condition of our hearts. That we are those who are a joyfully conquered people. That we openly confess Jesus is my master. He didn't just give me eternal life, but that Jesus, he controls me. He tells me what's right and wrong. He tells me how to live. He tells me what to do with my life. And I, and I follow that with a great sense of joy. God, I pray if there's anybody here who does not know Jesus in this way, who is not yet of conquered soul, 
who is not yet of poor in spirit, that today might be the day that they joyfully surrender the reins of their life to Jesus and allow him to conquer them, to domesticate them, to bring them under his control, and that they might, for the first time in their life, experience true eternal life, the mercy and grace of God today. We ask this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.